The second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all of my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want to give special thanks to Liz for reading one of the most difficult psalms in our text. Uh, it's not an easy thing to, um, to read that, so thank you for doing that work. Um, in 1856, there was a man who is here in this area named George Gibbs, and he drew a map of Seattle and the surrounding area. And the map that he drew is actually hanging in the Duwamish Longhouse. And I don't know if any of you have seen it or any of you have been there, but you can look it up. Um, And if you study this map that was drawn in 1856 by George Gibbs, and George Gibbs studied as an ethnologist. He came from Harvard, and then he also came through the Smithsonian Institute and ended up here in the Pacific Northwest. What you will see is a very, very, very large watershed and river extending out from this tiny, tiny, tiny little dot that is just right north of the center of the Elliott Bay shore, known in 1856 as Seattle. You will see that from that little tip that is on the north of the Elliott Bay shore, extends out from there a huge watershed that weaves its way south and then almost swings towards the bottom of what is now Lake Washington and then stretches out east towards the Cascades. Now, pause. If you look at a map in Seattle printed in 1958, What do you think that you will see? (laughs) You will not see that watershed. You will barely be able to make out that there was a watershed and a river that existed along the south area of Seattle. Instead, here's what you will see. You will see roads going up and down the center of that area You will see ferry lines extending out from Elliott Bay, and you will see two airports 
that take up much of that space where the watershed is slash was. But the river that George Gibbs sketched out in 1856, if you compare it to the map that was printed in 1958, the river that was sketched out is unseen, untitled even, unnamed. It had become to the untrained Pacific Northwest eye absolutely invisible. And later, if you're interested in taking a peek at those uh, photos, I have um, a book that I just checked out from the library uh, called Once in Free Future River, and I'll just kind of try to get to that spot real quick. So you can see the map from 1856 and the map from 1958. Show that a little bit later too. Digging a little bit deeper into the history, you can see that the river's name was even changed about a hundred years ago. It was then called the Lowish, the Lower Duwamish Waterway. And if you want to look it up now, you'll have to find it under this title, the Lower Duwamish Waterway Superfund Site. Okay? Now, becoming a Superfund site is not the honor that we might all think that it is. <laughs> Sounds like it. But in fact, one can only become a Superfund site, you can only qualify for that by becoming one of the most polluted waterways in the United States. And a quick search on the EPA website reads this way, and I apologize to the scientists in the room, I promise I'm gonna do the best I can to get through this language. Most of the human, and this is taken straight from the, the, the site on the EPA, most uh, dealing specifically with the lower Duwamish Waterway Superfund site. Most of the human health risk comes from polychlorinated biphenols, comma, or parentheses, PCBs, comma, arsenic, comma, carcinogenic, polycyclic, aromatic hydrocarbons, parentheses, CPAHs, comma, as well as dioxins and furins. As a result, consumption of resident fish and shellfish as well as contact with contaminated sediments pose a risk to human health. The Washington Department of Health issued a fish advisory recommending that no one eat crab, shellfish, and fish, except for some species of salmon, from the lower Duwamish waterway. I pulled that off at the site this last week very recent information. Ugh. I just want to take a moment to think about the difference between those words that I just read and that first map that was created by George Gibbs in 1856, where that waterway stretched all the way far south of Seattle and then weaved its way 
into the Cascades. What a difference. And what words are in order for a world that has been made invisible? What words, what words can you say? What words are in order for a whole landscape that has been desecrated? And if we do enough digging in history, all of us in this room know why this is the case, right? We've all been trained. We've all been out there in different parts of this specific area. We all can put together the reasons why this has happened. We can understand the context, right? And this is good, but it only offers us so much. It doesn't help us figure out what it means, right? It doesn't help us figure out what it means. Psalm 137, the psalm that we read today, is written for a community that had lost everything. This community had lost everything. It is what is called a lament psalm. And lament psalms are not intended to be a guide for the way that we treat our enemies. They should never rationalize violence in any way. But they are written because somebody needs to put words to the way that it feels when everything around you disappears. Somebody needs to be able to put words to that. Because losses are brutal. They are maddening and they are devastating. And anybody this week who's read a little bit about what's going on in the country of Haiti, we don't need to go back over 2,000 years to see this kind of devastation happening. It's happening here in our current world now. Losses are brutal, they are maddening and devastating, and they don't just take place in history, Although they do, they do take place in history and there are real events and actions that happen that contribute to that. But in addition to that, they also happen in our hearts, right? They also change our identity. They also change what we believe to be true. They also change how we see the world. And that's how the losses happen on the inside of us. And they need deep and honest language to try to figure out how to get at them. And this is what a lament psalm has the ability to do. A lament psalm puts language around the unthinkable. It puts language around the unthinkable, and it forces us not just to come face to face with the violation, which is something that we need to do, but a lament psalm also forces us to look it in the eye and to think about what it feels like, what it means to have the fabric shaken out from underneath you. Usually when we read Psalm 137, we don't read the whole psalm. You can understand why. But it's important that we do that, not just because it's in our text. As a pastor, one of my least favorite things that happens, and by the way, this is nobody's fault, but one of my least favorite things that happens is that people become so unfamiliar with these very difficult parts of the text that we don't even think that they're there. And then all of a sudden we get to another point where we read it and we think, well, that's funny, I never heard that. Well, yeah, that's because we never read it. So we need to read those texts 
But we also need to understand why they're here. They're here because somebody needed to put language around the unthinkable. Somebody needed to help us to see and feel what it actually means. Now, were we to think a little bit about the fabric of society and the whys and the hows and the how did we get to this, I can help illustrate a little bit about that. Because the reality is that Psalm 137 was a long time in coming. It wasn't a surprise. The exile was a very, very, very brutal part of Israel's history, for sure, but the stability of Jerusalem had been in question for a long time. It wasn't as if one day it just sort of fell apart. It is true that one day the temple was desecrated, but the challenges that surrounded Jerusalem had been coming and coming and coming for a while. They had been enduring threats from surrounding nations. And you'll even hear that in the echoes of the psalm where the psalmist thinks back to the Edomites. Well, that was a previous time in which Jerusalem had been sieged, right? It wasn't as bad as the time that they were held captive by the Babylonians, but it was a definite time in history in which their livelihood was threatened. So there were threats of surrounding nations. There were political agreements that were made and broken. And all of the kings within Jerusalem had to figure out how to stabilize by offering a certain amount of happiness to this person and making sure that they offered a certain amount of money to this person so that all of that could be held in equilibrium. Well, eventually a king came that said, I'm not going to do that. Right? And guess what? Equilibrium was out of sorts. Babylonians saw that as a prime time in which to come right into the walls of Jerusalem and completely desecrate it. Within 10 years of that attack from the Babylonians, and for those who have recently traveled to Cambodia, I'll just also offer this piece, that the Babylonians also came into Jerusalem, and the first folks that they took into the exile were all the educated classes. Those were the people that they came and they took out. And so Jerusalem was left to its devices of just being sort of peasants and farmers. And then the second time they came in, they took everyone, right? That's how that desecration happened. And it took over 10 years. So over 10 years from that first attack in Jerusalem, the temple had been desecrated and destroyed. The population was then moved forcibly thousands of miles north into the area of Assyria, which the capital of which was Babylonia, okay, which I think that that's modern-day Iraq, but somewhere in that area. And that forcible relocation changed everything. It changed everything. And for those who have some familiarity with Old Testament history, you'll know that the temple previous to this point was seen as the location where the people of God were to come into contact with that which they knew to be the creator of the universe, right? That was the heart of their theology. And if you read other psalms that exist within our psalmody, you'll see that the writer will call out to Jerusalem. And the reason why the writer is doing that is because that is where the people understood the heart of God to live, right? And what do you do when the heart of God and everything you know about the way in which you are to understand God becomes ripped out of your culture and all of a sudden you are in a foreign land by a different river and you have nowhere to sing songs to Jerusalem. 
See, it's not just a relocation of people. That's what the history books can teach us, and that's important. But we need lament psalms to teach us that it's not just a relocation of people. It's a relocation of the entire human interior landscape. That's what it was a relocation of. It changed families. It changed worship. It changed the theological imagination of Israel. It changed everything. It changed everything. Because that's what happens when Reformation is happening. You see, we think of Reformation as a very positive thing, and that's because we live on the privileged side of it, right? We live on the side of it where we don't have to deal with the persecution that was accompanied by Reformation. We live on the side of it that is sort of the outcome of that. But that's just a very minor season of history. Don't worry, our changes are coming. We all feel them now, right? It's a very short-lived season by historical standpoints. Everything is changing again, right? But Reformation calls everything into question. And it doesn't do that just because it seems like it's a good idea. You know, we heard a little bit about Martin Luther. It's not like Martin Luther said, you know, it's a great idea to change the church today. I think today is the day for it. I'm feeling good. Time to post those 95 theses. No, it is not like that. Reformation comes because it's necessary Because there are limited options. Because the only way that we can see forward is a very narrow lens that forces us to say, I don't know if this is the way, but I don't see any other way to go, so I'm going to try it. Right? That's what Reformation forces us to do. And many times that's accompanied by suffering. Many times that's accompanied by deep violation of what it means to be human. Many times it's accompanied by a story that it takes years to tell because we've buried it so deeply that we can no longer even figure out how to access it. And as we go down the road of reformation slowly but surely, we begin to recover those stories that have been hidden on the sidelines not just like the Duwamish River. For those that pay attention to the stories around LGBTQ rights, you know that so many of those stories have been buried within our history. And only people now are starting to slowly lift them up. Because that's what happens during times of change. We bury things. And oftentimes those things get buried at the expense of what it means to be human. When we make our way through the landscape of Reformation, years and years and years, it's almost not fair to talk about it in a sermon because 30 seconds passes and I can turn the page. That's never how it works in history. But as we make ourselves, or if we, as we get through these times of Reformation, we eventually make space for something new. And we would not have the words of the prophet Isaiah if we didn't have Psalm 137. All of those words that we hear around the time of Advent, all of those promises that we hear come about, coming out of Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort, oh my people. That's an exile sentence. 
Arise, arise, your light has shined. That is a sentence that comes out of exile. So as time passes, the imagination gets recreated. The Spirit of God begins to speak in a new way. And out of the land of deep darkness, out of the land of lament, light begins to shine. Friends, our psalm today gives us permission to be in darkness. It gives us permission to have seasons of lament. What are you lamenting right now? What loss are you aware of, though at times you may want to bury it? Psalm 137 invites you to claim that. It invites you to notice the times when Reformation comes home, when it's almost too close for comfort. Where is your Reformation happening right now? Or maybe if you don't know where that Reformation is happening, another way of thinking about it is what Reformations are you leaning into within the world? What rivers are you laboring for, specifically and metaphorically? Or maybe you're not ready to labor for those rivers yet. Maybe you are still in that place where you just need to talk about what has been lost. Because things are changing. You know, this is a very small thing, but a lot of people ask me, or not a lot, a handful of folks, um, often, and, and I do not make light of this, this is a very real thing, so, uh, and I, I very much understand the reality of this, but many people will ask, why don't you wear a robe? Why don't you wear a robe anymore? It's a loss, isn't it? It's a loss to see the church that you grew up with change. Well, one of the reasons why I don't wear a robe is because the more that I have engaged in the life of this community surrounding this area of Ballard, the more that I want to be known, not as somebody to be afraid of, but as somebody that can be spoken to at any time. And that means when people come through these doors, I don't want them to be afraid of the robe, because that's what the robe does now. Creates fear, not in you, but in our community. We have got to figure out how to remove the vestiges that stop us from being welcoming. And I know all the reasons why the robe is to be worn. I wore it for 17 years. I'm not afraid of it. I can put it on at any day. I understand that it's about the office. I understand that it's about the work of being a pastor. But in the 21st century, we have got to figure out how to do the work of the church without the vestiges that we've carried for the last 500 years. We just do. It's not my choice. It's the world that we live in. Okay? It's the world that we live in. And we've got to lament it. We've got to grieve it. We've got to let that Psalm 137 space be there because it's real. And then we've got to let the Spirit work in us so that we can come to a place where we get to the Isaiah 40, where we get to the Isaiah 60, where we see that, in fact, the Spirit is working and moving and changing us in ways we never thought we could change. 
Change is necessary. It is not optional. And the question that we have to wrestle with as we endure these times of change is what is it that we have the power to erase and what don't we? What gets chipped away in the irons of change? Is it like the people, the Duwamish people, a watershed? Is it like the people of Jerusalem, a temple? What comes to be in that place? Will there be a movement of change and a return to something that is important for our land? Will it be like it was for the ancient Jerusalemites, a new understanding of God that gave way to a new way of practice? See, we don't understand yet the way that the exile actually changed the entire face of Judaism. It was a different thing when they came back to Jerusalem because they had lived years aside from a place where all of their religious practices needed to revolve around. So when they came back, they had to figure it out anew. And it was not a returning to the old, but it was a making way for something new. In closing, I'll just say that perhaps that's the reason why in the gospel text that we have today, that Jesus ends up siding with the man who has the open perspective rather than the one who is certain. Because reformation is a part of life. And Jesus recognizes that. He recognizes that in this parable that he offers his disciples. And he gives it to them as a word for them to move forward. To not think that they have everything figured out. But instead to approach the world with open hands. Because that is how the earth moves forward. That is how the creatures of the earth move forward. And therefore, that is how God moves forward. We say so much in the land of the Reformation and in the landscape of this church. We talk about God's elect and that which God chooses. And I am still reformed because that is what I believe from the bottom of my heart. That God chooses this world. And that God chooses to be God in the context of this world. And so the fact that the earth changes, the fact that we change, the fact that the spirit of God changes, doesn't call into question who God is. It, in fact, affirms who God is because God chooses to be God in this way. It is God's freedom. This is God's choice. And in that, we can celebrate. Friends, there is a lot that will be changing We are not in charge. We get to hold all of this with open hands to respond, to say thank you. Thank you for being a God that chooses to be God. 
through this world and through us. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much for these texts today, for these texts of lament that give us permission to grieve all of the things that we have lost and that we wish were still here. That give us permission to imagine the future in a new way when the time has come. That give us permission to listen to you in a way that we never thought we could hear you. So open our hearts and our minds that we might be able to do that. And as the ushers come forward to receive this morning's offering, we give you thanks and we ask that you would use these gifts and these resources to continue your work around the neighborhood and around the city and around the world. Through Christ we pray. Amen.